So I was sitting in my office with uh, someone who was having a hard time. And I said, let's go to the book. Something that I say, let's see what the, the scriptures have to say about your situation. This person was really suffering. But she couldn't believe that God loved her. She couldn't believe that Christ would triumph in her life. Because she couldn't see a solution that went beyond human means. She said, you know, we're talking about real life here. And it reminded me of uh, something else that happened. Uh, recently, a student wrote to me and was talking about how the Bible's stories and accounts always seemed abstract to her, somewhat separate from life. It didn't feel real to her. And I see this around me today. I see a pervading sense of unreliability. I think it's acquired through our education that the Bible is unreliable in telling us about real people. I was just reading a review of a new book that just came out, this new academic book, hot off the press, just out. And it was uh, called Resetting the Origins of Christianity. And the, uh, and the author is arguing that we, we can't really know if the New Testament captures the first century events. We can't know that the new, what the New Testament says is really describing what happened in the first century. That's the argument of the book. This new book um, uh, just came out. It's, this is going on around us, and I, and I see the connection between this and people not being able to believe God. I know there are some of you here even today who struggle with some of the things that you read in the Bible, struggle in 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 the decision about whether it's real for you, whether, whether it's about God's sovereignty, whether it's about God's love or, or some other issue that you're, you're reading about and struggling about, and you're tempted to say it isn't real. Well, what I want to do with you this morning is open this old book with you, and we're going to read as we close now the letter to the Romans uh, after our long journey, our cursory introduction here, our cursory examination of the book of Romans, we're going to end it today again with the last chapter. But I want you to listen uh, about this book because the things that are being expressed are being written from real people to real people. I want to invite Mark to come up. Would you please stand as we read? morning. I'll be reading Romans chapter 16 verses 1 through 27 from the English Standard Version. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. 
Greet my beloved Epinodus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, my beloved Stachius. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and cre create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ with their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent, as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Christ Jesus. Amen. This Amen. is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Please be seated. Well done, Mark. <laughs> well done. And so we hear the concluding words of the Apostle Paul at the conclusion of his church planting career. He has been planting churches for about 25 years in the area around Greece and Turkey. 
And he has now completed that. He may not be aware of it, but he is about to go and uh, take this collection he's been making uh, and, and laboring to collect to Jerusalem. And it's this three-month period that we read about uh, in the book of Acts where he could have written this letter that we're talking about. And so this letter that we've, we've just concluded uh, reading is, is written from Corinth to Rome. Uh, how do we know that? Well, we can see the marks, I would say, marks of reality in the different things that uh, are written here. Even in this passage, verse 1, Phoebe, uh, the, the, I think most people think, who, who was the one who bore this letter, who actually carried this letter uh, to Rome. Uh, people spend a lot of time arguing whether she was actually a deacon or a deaconess. Uh, we're not going to do that this morning. We're going to instead just note that she hails from, as Mark read, Sincrea. Sincrea is just next to Corinth. It's a, it's a port uh, city. It was just next to Corinth. Makes sense she would be bringing the letter. Verse 23 mentions Gaius, also a character that we found uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, was baptized by Paul, one of the few people that he baptized when he came to Corinth. <clears throat> So he shows up also in this letter. And so this is a real place, Corinth. Um, you have a picture here of the bema or the, the uh, kind of place where the council, the pro-council would gather. Uh, and this is where people would be heard if there was something to decide. And this is important because it's a beautiful space here in ancient, ancient Corinth because uh, we, we can, we can it, it's, we've been able to excavate it because... There is not a modern city on top of it. That's the Akrocker in the background, that big rock. But this, you can see this, uh, this structure here would be where the council would come to hear people, and it would be where they heard the Apostle Paul when he first came to uh, the city described in Acts chapter 18, A.D. 51. This is the view from the other side. This is not the Apostle Paul. Um, this is Veronica, but over, over her right shoulder here, right in this area here, we can tell this is exactly where um, the Apostle Paul would stand and where he did stand in the, in the events described in, in uh, Acts chapter 18. And here's another picture from the front. This is also not the Apostle Paul. Um, this is me, and I'm able to talk here, and I was able to have the privilege of going to Corinth and, talk, and speak here. When Paul opened his mouth in that same spot, that exact spot, uh, the, the proconsul cut him off, and uh, he, he didn't want to hear it. He said, you know, I've had enough of you Jews. You're always arguing, so I'm not going to hear anything, and so changed the course of the events of that day. And so this is an actual real place where Paul wrote this letter, and the time we can tell in, that he wrote it was, is described in Acts chapter 20. There's this three-month period, probably about A.D. 57, uh, where he's writing. And so it was, it's neat to, to stand in front of this two square miles and say somewhere in this area, the letter to the Romans was actually written. Probably one of these, uh, the back rooms of one of these shops here, um, somewhere. This is where the letter went out from. Uh, so it was from Corinth. And we also see marks of reality in this letter that it was written to Rome. 
You can see it, for example, in verse 5, where Paul says, this is, I want to cite someone in the church which meets in their house. Okay, and, and you can see throughout this passage, Paul greets at least three, maybe five different house churches. Okay, that would, would be strange unless you're talking about a place with a great population. Uh, it fits the population of Rome in the first century. It's estimated to be about a million people. And so if you have this letter going out and the church is in Rome, it's going to be in a number of different house churches. And you can see verse 16, this, this, this letter is going out and greeting is going out from all the churches to one kind of particular church of note here. Another strong argument that this is a Roman destination for this letter. And if you look at it, just, just the variety of people <clears throat> that are mentioned here, Seven Jewish names, eight Latin names, 18 Greek names. At least three of these names, maybe nine of them, are names of slaves. You can tell by the names that at least three of these are slaves. Some of them maybe also freedmen, that is people who had been slaves but were now free. Different status in society. Nine women. Uh, are mentioned in this passage, one of which, um, one of whom I wrote about on my website this week. You can read about Junia there. But we should note for us this morning that this, this helps us see that women were crucial to the operation, to the life, and to the work of the early church. They were critical to what was going on. You see all of these women's name, names come up in the greetings that Paul makes. Verse 2 Verse 23, they're patrons. There are hosts, which means people of means. You know, you couldn't be a patron. You couldn't be a host unless you were of the elite. You were a person who had money, who had wealth there uh, in Rome or in Corinth. So behold, friends, the Christians of Rome, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, high and low. We're encountering real people that were walking around, they were dressed like this, only they probably had heads at the time, but this is, this is what they would have looked like in their garb, and here I have a relief actually from Corinth of a guy walking around, this is what he would be doing, walking around Corinth. You have these real people that are walking around. So what I want to do this morning is just take some time to introduce you to some of the real people in Romans chapter 16. And we're going to start with verse 22, where we find out why this is such a long letter, why it's taken us most of the year uh, actually to get through in, in our reading. And we find in verse 22, um, there's, a, there's a guy who chimes in at this point. Uh, recall that we, we talked about how this is unusually long. This is an extraordinarily long letter, not only for the New Testament, but for antiquity. Uh, letters were not this long. Uh, and the reason why they were not this long is because of the cost of production. Not only the materials that it would take, uh, that, that the writing materials that would, you would use, but you would also have to go down to the town square and hire an amanuensis or, or secretary to help with the editing and the copies that are made. It was a big production. Uh, so you didn't find letters uh, this long. Not only in the New Testament, just kind of around anywhere. 
But you see here, this long list of greetings that we're reading, it's, it's without parallel anywhere in the New Testament. Uh, even the concluding doxology that Mark read, verses 25 through 27 there, that's longer than we find in any of Paul's other epistles. Why is this so? And I would say we find out in verse 22 where Tertius comes in. You know, while we're on the subject of people who are with us, you see that in verse 22, Timothy, Lucius, Tertius pops in and says, and I greet you also, I, Tertius, who took down this letter. In other words, the secretary who was helping prepare was a member of the church of Corinth. So I think we can see what, what happened here. Is that likely we, we had a, a believing scribe in the church there who was willing to give his services for the production of this letter, maybe at a discount, or maybe even without charge. You know, this is the kind of thing that goes on in Christian churches. I, you know, it goes on here. If you have somebody who's maybe a chef, maybe Dave Fry, who says, you know, I want to put on this feast for the church, but I don't really want to decide, I don't really want to charge the church what, I, what he's really worth as a chef, right? So he might say, oh, I could just do it for cost. And, you know, many of you do that. This was done this morning by Phil in setting up this slideshow. You have skills, and you say, I don't, I don't want to charge the church because in your heart you want to give this to the Lord. Well, the same thing was going on back then in that church. And I think, I think Tertius and his identity here gives us a good explanation for why this letter is so long. Because Paul saw he had an opportunity here. He, he was going to take advantage of someone uh, who said, you know, I'm willing to give these services to you. And so he said everything that he wanted to say. Real person here in verse 22. And if we look at the, these other greetings here in verses 21 through 23, we see other people from other parts of the New Testament. Kind of marks of reality here, reality here of authenticity in that these people uh, that show up. Among those who are sending greetings, you look at verse 21 with me. That Lucius in verse 21, very possibly the Luke that we know as Paul's traveling companion in Acts. It's another way of saying Luke, possibly him. Verse 21, Jason here, very likely the same Jason who hosted Paul on his first visit to Thessalonica, described in Acts 17. And also in verse 21, Sosipater is certainly, is certainly the Sopater mentioned in Acts chapter 20. It was Paul's companion during this three-month period in Corinth. And as I already mentioned, Gaius, verse 23, undoubtedly, undoubtedly the Gaius that Paul baptized when he first uh, came to Corinth. But there's one other person I really want you to be, to be sure that you, that you uh, identify here, and that's in verse 13. He says, Rufus, I want to greet Rufus. Now, Rufus is not an uncommon name, but this Rufus is chosen in the Lord, you see. And the reason that's significant is that if you go and read the Gospel of Mark, you find that Mark relays, you know, different events in Jesus' life, right? And he gets to a very intense 
uh, part of the story where Jesus is going to the cross. And he's, he's talking about Jesus going to the cross and all the things that are, that are happening to him. And at one point, it's particularly a poignant moment, Jesus collapses. He's lost so much blood. His body is so mangled that he can't carry the cross any longer. And Mark makes a mention that at that moment, the Romans uh, grabbed a passerby to help Jesus carry the cross. You remember that part of the story, right? And Mark tells us that this guy's name was Simon of Cyrene. And he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. You can read about this in Mark chapter 15. And you, and you got to wonder, what, what, purpose, what purpose would Mark have in telling us this story? He's in the middle of this intense story and said, oh, by the way, by the way, Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. He would have no reason for bringing that up at all unless that these people, Alexander, Rufus, were people of note among his audience, right? They had some kind of eminency uh, in, the, in the early church in the people that he was writing to. And this takes on even more significance, friends, when we realize that Mark was written to the Romans. Mark is the gospel that was written to the Romans. We can tell whenever he has a, a custom of Israel, he explains the custom. Like, this is what we do in Israel. Whenever there's an Aramaic expression in the gospel, he translates the Aramaic expression. There are more Latin technical terms in the gospel of Mark than any of the other gospels, even though the other gospels are longer. And he even reckons time the same way that, that Romans reckon time in the gospel of Mark. And if you, you, you remember, the, the gospel of Mark reaches a climax with someone confessing Yes, Jesus is the Son of God. And do you know who Mark notes makes that confession? You might remember. He's a Roman centurion. This is a gospel for the Romans, very probably written to Rome. So you see, if you, if you, see, if you look at verse 13, verse 13 comes alive. And Mark 15 makes sense. If, quite probably, the Rufus of Mark 15 and the Rufus of verse 13 are one and the same. The real person, a real person to which Paul is sending greetings. And it's not only people within the New Testament that are referenced here. There are people here with likely references outside of the Bible as well. I'm looking here at him. Ampliatus in, in verse 8. Interesting, Ampliatus. It kind of rhymes with Andreatus. Obviously an important person here in the text. Actually, Ampliatus is a very, a very common slave name, especially common in Rome in the inscriptions in the imperial household. Why is that significant? Because we know there was this woman who was the niece of the emperor Domitian, she was also the wife of Flavius Clemens. We know this from Eusebius, that she actually became a Christian. Her name was Domitilla. Domitilla was persecuted after she became a Christian, uh, but she was of this noble household of, of Flavius Clemens. So um, she had, they had an estate. And uh, later on, archaeologists uncovered the catacombs beneath uh, that estate. 
You can go and visit them today. They're the catacombs of Domitilla. You go in those catacombs, in those catechisms, in, in, catechism, in those catacombs, excuse me, there are catechisms. <laughs> and uh, there are also um, burial chambers. In the burial chamber, there, there, there are two inscriptions that mention the name Ampliatus. One of them is from the 200s. One of them is earlier, maybe even the first century, Ampliatus. And it's natural to suppose that this, this name is somehow being carried on in this household, Ampliatus. Well, why would that happen? This is a slave's name. This is not a name you want to pass on to future generations. Ampliatus, as if, as if it's some, some person of worth. So we have a real possibility here that, the, that it is through the Ampliatus that that Paul is greeting here, a slave, that the gospel first entered into the household of Flavia Domitilla. Okay? Real person here. You look at verse 10, those in the family of Aristobulus. Okay, another important name. That's a name that's much used in the family of Herod the Great. Remember, we've spoken about Herod the Great. Well, he had a lot of people in his family named Aristobulus. Okay, his his third son was named Aristobulus. His nephew was named Aristobulus. And his grandson was named Aristobulus. And that's significant, especially in light of what you see in verse 11. The next verse makes mention of the name Herodian. Okay? So obviously Paul's mind is on the family of Herod. And the grandson of of uh, Herod the Great, this Aristobulus, he was a very interesting figure. He was a very private person. He lived in Rome. He was the friend of Emperor Claudius. He died around 45 to 48, that time period, right before the writing of this letter. And when he died, his household was united with the royal household. And they, they became known as the Aristobulani, the Aristobulani, or household of Aristobulus. And among the Aristobulani, there were a good many Jews, as you can imagine, and we know that it was through the Jews that Christianity originally came to the empire. We also know from Tacitus that by the middle of the, fifth, of the first century, the 50s, by 50 AD, the gospel had made inroads into Rome. And it was making waves in Rome. It was a, people were aware of it in Rome. So it's very likely that this Aristobulus Paul is greeting here as a grandson, the grandson of Herod, because um, he's mentioning him here, and it's a real possibility there. So why is it in this letter? Because we're talking about real people. I could give you a similar story of the family of Narcissus there in verse 11, but I really want you to, I really want you to meet this character in verse 23. In verse 23, Paul writes, Erastus is sending you green. Paul or, Luther, or Tertius is saying, Erastus oikonomos tes poloes. That is, oikonomos is kind of a city treasurer, a person of influence in Corinth. And so this is, this is significant because when I was in Corinth, as I said, I had, had the um, privilege of going there and I was, I was in a tour. We had this tour guide. His tour, the tour guide's name was, was Thanos. Never, yeah, never forget 
Thanos the tour guide. Um, this was before all the movies, you know. And he had been a tour guide there for a long time. I was going around with him, and I said, you know, this is all great, this, this, these things about Corinth um, that you're showing us, but I want to see the stone. Thanos looked at me and said, the stone? What stone? I said, I want to see the Erastus stone, of course. And Thanos, Thanos cocked his head at me, and he said, you know, I've been a tour guide here for 37 years. 37 years. He said, and you're only the third person who ever asked me to see the Erastus stone. The third person. I said, I find that almost incomprehensible because of the value of the stone. But I still want to see the stone. <laughs> Thanos said, you want to see the stone? We'll go see the stone. And so he took us across the street from the city of Corinth to this field. And this is what it looked like. It was this, this, this huge field of flowers. And and I and Thanos and the few people I convinced to go off trail with me, we went off into this field of flowers, had to make our way through this field of flowers. And why we did, I told them the story. I said, you know, in 1929, they found, the excavators found, this was right before actually the great uh, crash of the stock market, the great stock market crash in 1929, right before that, um, this is, this is when money managers were jumping off of buildings onto pavements. Archaeologists, kind of ironic, archaeologists found this pavement, this pavement that was paved by the, the financial manager, a financial manager of, of uh, Corinth. And we can get there. This is where, what it looked like. We came to it and we, you know, we brushed away. I, I thought this was a crime actually, that this was not, was not being protected. It was just out there in this field. But it was a crime. You can see that it's inscribed. Um, it's a seven and a half foot long slab of stone that was part of a pavement. Um, and the inscription, you know, would have originally um, had bronze in it. Now the bronze is gone. This is the way it looks now. This is what it looked like when it was originally excavated. And I can read you the inscription. This is what it says. Erastus, commissioner of public works, laid this pavement at his own expense. Erastus Pro AED, that's an abbreviation for edile, S.P. Stravit, laid this pavement at his own expense. The edile, again, um, highly significant office, a place of honor in the city, and you say, well, edile isn't quite the same word that, that Paul uses uh, in Romans 16 for Erastus, but um, Paul's writing in Greek. This is in Latin. Could be the same. Maybe they're different. If they're different, though, not too different, um, you could hold these office, one office at one time, and you could hold the other office at another. These, these offices were, were held for about a year. They had a, elections every year. So, you know, there was a career path from one to the other. So uh, long story short, friends, what we're talking about here is Erastus that, that Paul is addressing. You know, in the New Testament, we, we read these, this term sometimes, good works, and we think, oh, good works. Well, I want to do good works, you know, not lying on my taxes and, you know, treating people well. But in the, it, a lot of times in the New Testament, when it says good works, it means specifically works that you do for the community, 
Paul even says that in Romans 13. When you do the good deed, the good work, then you will be commended by the civil authority. Uh, so very often in their minds, it's things that were done for the community. And here we have Erastus laying a pavement at his own expense. He would do that in gratitude for being appointed this position of edile uh, in the community, in the city. So edile, city treasure, both terms of public finance. Um, do you see what we're looking at here? You know, what clinches it for me is that Erastus was an exceedingly uncommon name. You know, there are different names that are, are common. Some are uncommon. Like in this church, right, you might meet a Dave, and then you'll meet another Dave, then you'll meet another Dave, or you'll meet a Josh, and then another Josh, and then another Josh, right? But there are some names you're really only going to meet one. You're only going to meet one Magda, right? You're only going to meet one Milada, probably only one Atticus, right? These are unique names, right? You're probably not going to meet another one in your life. Well, Erastus was the Milada of Corinth, of ancient Corinth. And the reason we can tell, we only can kind of come to this knowledge recently because of the application of computer technology um, to the different databases we have, all of the literary uh, evidence we have, the inscriptions that we have, the papyri, they've, they've been compiled and with the application of, of different computer um, programs to determining the frequency of things, we can tell how common or uncommon names were. Name, and Erastus was an uncommon name. I just want you to see the reality of this, where this pretty girl is putting her fingers. I put my fingers, too. I put my fingers in those grooves. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at the slide. Look at that inscription, Erastus. Now look down at verse 23. Okay, now look at the slide again. Now look at verse 23. This was a real person. A real person that Paul is addressing. This is what I wanted to do just this morning. Just take some time for you to see that these were real people that were being addressed. And they had the same kind of difficulties that we have. And they were addressed with these real truths that we've learned, these lessons that we've learned from the, from the letter to the Romans. This is why, because, because these are real truths to real people that we should embrace the lessons that we've learned. If you think about the different lessons that we've learned, this is why we should believe in God's independence, that he has this aseity that makes him different, him unlike us. Why we should trust in God's judgment, his justice, in allowing evil. Just speaking with someone this morning about this, that he does allow evil. He, there is this passing over that we've seen in, in Romans that he does that he's done, and yet he is still just. Why we should be ready to say to others, even to non-believers, in this, you are more righteous than I. Why we should accept the reckoning, the reckoning of ourselves to be righteous through the mysterious common descent from a common ancestor. 
why we should understand that God sometimes brings judgment upon a people. And the form of that judgment is the breakdown of gender in relationship. He gives over a people for their thanklessness. That he does that. And why we should give ourselves over to be enslaved to a new master. And to imitate Christ in taking the bullet for our neighbor. That we, whether we're the stronger or the weaker brother, should aspire to zeal and freedom. Avoiding both license and legalism. And why we should believe, as we learned on Easter, that God loves our bodies and will give life to our mortal bodies. Or even going way back to the beginning, why we should welcome the strange Gentiles in our midst. Even if they have strange bodies, we should be doing that in our midst. All of these lessons should shape our lives because this book is real. And these people are real. You know, that student that wrote to me that the, the Bible is too abstract for her, didn't seem like things were real, recently had, a, had an opportunity to bring her to Israel. She saw where these things happened that the Gospels describe. And the way she described it was the words went from black and white on the pages to alive to her. It's evidence that she saw that authenticates what the book is claiming. So not only the people are real, the claims are real as well. And this is the way God has chosen to do it. Through the scriptures to us. Just like Ryan was asking, do you wonder why God does things the way he does? It's because, as Paul says here, he is, verse 27, only wise. He is only wise. And so verse 25 says, this is made known through the scriptures. Again, Paul returning to where he began. You go back and read chapter 1, first seven verses talk about this being made known through the scriptures. And this forms a kind of inclusio with that here, verses 25 through 27. It's now manifested, now made known to all the nations. With the New Testament, this is fulfilled. That these things are made known to all the nations. We're talking about real life here. So let us now come to the table and let us appreciate what the scriptures tell us that Jesus really did for us. Please stand.